0: If any of you thought we were trying to pull a fast one on you, you know, we called this series in Psalms, Summer Psalms, an Oasis in the Desert, and then if you saw the email you, and you heard the passage this morning, you know we're going through Psalm 51, when I need to confess, and you say, hey, uh, that's kind of an uncomfortable message. How did you slip that in a series called an Oasis, a place of refreshment? Well, that's where I want it to lead to. That's where God wants it to lead to. I think of it kind of like this. If you live in Prescott and you want to get to the peak of Mingus Mountain and enjoy that glorious view of Sedona, you have to drive through Prescott Valley first, right? Okay, and why do I say that? Because sometimes when it comes to our walk with God, we have to go through the hard truth before we get to the healing or before we get to the full enjoyment of that relationship with God. So while this message will probably be uncomfortable at some points, I pray it will lead us to hope in Jesus Christ, hope in His healing. And I can tell you that I personally have talked with two married couples where there was adultery. And I can tell you that this passage Among other ways that God worked in their lives, was instrumental to those marriages being restored. It's not just about healing with each other. It was amazing to see as God restored their relationships with Him as well. So there's hope and power and healing to be had in this passage. So, with that in mind, I want to dive in. I summed it up under seven headings to help us track with David as he goes through. The first one is David's deed, David's deed. You know, a lot of times you read a Psalm and you say, hey man, I wonder what was going on in David's life when he wrote this one. This is not one of those ones you have to wonder because in the scripture, before you even get to verse one, there's an introduction that God gives us. It tells us when this happened. It says, to the choir master, uh, Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet, went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba many of you know that story I'd encourage you to go back and read 2 Samuel 11 and 12 this afternoon to get the full context but nutshell bullet points David the king stayed home in the palace where he should have been out leading Israel's armies against the enemy he saw Bathsheba bathing on her roof brought her home committed adultery with her told a number of lies, and ultimately plotted the murder of her husband. Many have looked at this chapter in David's life and found it an interesting exercise to see just how many of the the Ten Commandments that David broke in one event in his life. You could look at the externals like adultery and murder, lying, but if you start to look at the heart, you'll find it's even more. Second Samuel 11, after the deed had happened, verse 26, it says, When the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to the house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The very next chapter, a prophet named Nathan shows up. We know this was at least nine months after the deed had happened because the end of chapter 11 tells us she bore him a son. For nine months, David has been unrepentant about this wicked deed that he had committed. You remember Nathan shows up and tells him this great, powerful story about a rich man who had all kinds of sheep. But he had a visitor come. And he needed a sheep to have for fellowship with this visitor. But instead of using one of his many sheep, he went and stole one from a man who had only one sheep that he loved. He had that sheep killed. And you remember David's reaction. He was furious. Justice for this man. And then you remember Nathan the prophet stared David in the eyes and said, you are the man. Now I think about this and I think about something. How many of us just love it when another person confronts us with something sinful in our lives? <laughs> yeah, there's a big part of our flesh that wants no part of that, right? We don't want to be told things about our lives that need to change from other people. I I thought about this in a silly everyday kind of example, because I got a flesh just like you got a flesh that I battle with. Yesterday, I took our younger two boys, Evan and Luke, to Home Depot, and we worked on one of those building projects that they have, and we built a car and a a camper. And there was a very helpful guy down the table, very helpful. (laughs) In fact, three times he he stopped by to tell me how, how I could do it better. And, you know, each time he had a legitimate point, like the first time we were hammering on the plastic table, getting a lot of bounce, he said, why don't you put that down on the concrete? And it's a big part of my flesh that wants to say, I got this, pal, right? <laughs> Thankfully, the Holy Spirit resides in me as well. And he's like, hey, that's actually a good point. That guy's just being thoughtful and it works better anyway another time he came down and we were trying to dry the paint on the car and uh, we were using papers. And he said, hey, there's little plates there. If you use those plates, you'll get a lot more air. Again, that flesh is like, <laughs> really, this was the third time. <laughs> Holy Spirit says, hey, he's just looking out for you. It's okay, just chill. And it did work better. None of us like to be told from somebody else what needs to change in our lives. Think about this example. This isn't just somebody getting reproved. This is the king. The king of the land is being reproved. And you think about the options at his disposal. Nathan, how dare you come into my court and talk to me like that? Not only are you no longer the court prophet, but let me introduce you to our executioner. That was on the table for a king, right? Is that what David did? No. No, and this is, you know, you hear the scripture tell us that David was a man after God's own heart. What we've already heard obviously tells us that it does not mean he was perfect. At least part of what it does mean what, that we learn from this story is that when he was confronted with his sin, though it, though it took some time for God to work in his life, he he, he repented. He confessed and repented. That was David's deed. Now I want to talk about David's need. What did David need in light of what had happened? He needed the mercy and the forgiveness of God in his life. Verse 1, that's right where he starts. He gets right to it. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Undeserved favor. Where would that mercy come from? Why would David look to God for that? Why would he, what, what source would that come from if he didn't deserve it? It was who God was. That's what David was banking on. He says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. He knew if he was gonna get mercy, it was because of who God was, not who he was. You understand that? I sometimes hear folks say, I don't deserve God's forgiveness. And we could all echo that, but I want to tell you this morning that from a biblical perspective, that is just the tip of the iceberg. Listen, we don't deserve to even be alive. We deserve nothing but for an eternity in hell for the sin. In our lives. So I, David comes back to his need again. He says to God, Blot out my transgressions. It's as though there's a written record of his offenses that God sees, and he's like, I want this erased from your judicial record. Blot it out. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, my impurity, and cleanse me from my sin. This washing, he, he, he had pictures of this in his mind from the tabernacle, which was symbolic of the, the deeper inner truth here. Those priests had a wash basin outside. They were constantly washing themselves. And even people in the community, if they had some kind of discharge or touched a dead body or things, had to wash before they could come back to the tabernacle or fellowship with other Israelites. David knew those pointed to an inner reality. With God, that he needed to be washed from his impurity. That's his need, the mercy and forgiveness of God. Third, David agreed. What did he agree with? He agreed with God that his sinfulness was ultimately against God himself. Verse three, he, he talks about his sinfulness. He says, I know my transgressions. The ways I violated your law and my sin is ever before me. Have you ever been there? You sin and it's just con- you can't sleep. It is staring you down. You, you know what you've done and you can't stop thinking about it. That's where David is. But he turns from his sinfulness to God's holiness. Verse four. Listen to what he says to God. He says against you. You only Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Interesting phrase when you think about what happened against you. You only have I sinned, God. Does that mean that David was unaware that he had also sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and his own people by behaving in this way? Was he unaware of that? No but he knew that that deeper than all of those things, his violation was against God himself. Do we realize that when we enter into sin? It's ultimately against God himself. Andrew Murray wrote a great book called Confession and Forgiveness about this whole song. I would encourage you to read it. I was was in there some this week and and I want you to, Listen to what he wrote about sin being ultimately against God. I'm not going to say I like this quote because it's very uncomfortable. But I believe it's true. When we sin, he says, you have chosen your will, unjust and perverse as it is above his will. You have said that the counsel and the will of Satan is more attractive to you and has more influence with you than the will of God. As far as it was in your power, you have done your utmost to rob God of his glory. You have withstood him. You have dishonored this great and infinite God. You have affronted and insulted the high and holy one before whom angels prostrate themselves. Do we have that kind of a view? of our sin of our God Thomas Constable is helpful here when you hear that and you say what do I do he says when Christians sin against God they should confess their sins and repent i.e. adopt a different attitude toward the Lord that results in changed conduct he goes on to talk about his own sinfulness again Verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Does that mean his parents had some immorality when he was conceived? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about himself. He's saying, even at birth, I had that sin nature that, that I inherited from Adam. Now, I know there's, there's some, maybe even in this room, that say, that's not fair, God. Why do I get something attached to me that, that Adam did? But I want to tell you, there is hope to be found even in that. Hope because it's because God deals with the human race on the basis of a representative with their sin. He can also offer grace to the human race through a representative. What am I talking about? The first Adam and the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.45 Paul talks about this. He says, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Who's the last Adam? This life-giving spirit? Jesus Christ. Follow the argument in Romans 5.15. It says, if many died through one man's trespass, Adam's, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. It's because God deals with the human race through a representative in our sin that he could provide a representative for our forgiveness. Without that, guess what? It's, It's all individual. It's all up to you and your sin, and it's all up to you individually for your salvation. And you know how that idea went over in Galatians. There is no salvation in you. There is only salvation in the last Adam, Jesus Christ. So you see the beauty even in that system, right, that God set up. I believe that's at least part of why Romans 11.32 says, God has bound everyone over to disobedience. Yeah, I want to be bound to that. Well, what's the rest of the verse say? He's bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all there's grace even in the representative system but if God's working in our lives and he's showing us our sin this morning I think there's a reality we have to acknowledge and I'm going to come back to this car again because the the second time that guy helped me I really did need help See how these wheels are low enough to touch the ground? Well, the first time I put this top piece on, it was up here and the wheels were too high. So he came down and he said, oh, that happened to us too. If you just use a screwdriver and and pry that off, you'll be able to get it off and put it on the top side. And I did. And I think about that. And then I think about our walks with God. When we become aware of sin in our lives... Sometimes, in order to go forward in our lives with God, we have to go backward. We, we have to confess that, that sin that we've been holding on to. We have to repent of that sin that we've been holding on to and, in order to enjoy that fullness of that relationship again. And that's where we go next. Here we start to get into the good news here. David was freed. David was freed, not just forgiven, but restored by God. First, we see the summary of God's work in David in verse six. David says, God, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And I think at least part of that truth and wisdom that God was teaching David in this uncomfortable moment is that there was more than just forgiveness There was also restoration to a a full and free walk with God. Why do I say that? Because in verses 7 through 12, I see three different sets of forgiveness and restoration that David prayed for. Why did he pray for them? Because he believed God would offer them. And indeed he did. First set of forgiveness and restoration, verses 7 and 8. He says, purge me with hyssop." and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. You say, what's up with purge me with hyssop, and, and I shall be clean? Well, David was thinking of something in Leviticus. You know that book we often read over? Skip over, let's get to numbers. Leprosy is mentioned in that book. Okay, and leprosy in the Bible is a symbol for sin. You remember when someone had leprosy, they had to stay outside the camp. Cry out, unclean, unclean. Not only could they not come to the tabernacle, they couldn't be around the other Israelites. Why? Is that a picture of sin? Sin separates. It separates us from God and from each other, right? But a leper that, that was becoming well could come to the priest to see if he was well. And if the priest realized, hey, that leper is cleansed, there was this really weird ritual to our ears. The priest would take a jar of water, and two birds. He, he would kill one of the birds, put the, the blood in the water. He would take the live bird and some cedar and some hyssop. We say, What's hyssop? It's kind of like Russian sage. It even had a minty smell to it. He dipped that live bird, to cedar, and the hyssop in the water and the blood of the other bird. Then he would sprinkle that leper and say, You are clean. Then he'd let that live bird go. He bet that live bird said, Thank you. <laughs> What in the world is going on today? (laughs) But he was pronounced clean by that sprinkling. Guess what, believer? Hebrews 9 tells us that the, the fulfillment of that sprinkling comes in the sprinkling, what, of Jesus' blood. But for now, in David's life, he knew that that priestly ceremony represented something that God needed to do in his heart. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. That's the forgiveness in verse 7. But here comes... The restoration. Restoration to what? To wholeness and, and rejoicing again. Verse 8, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Bones you have broken. What's he talking about? At least nine months where he was living in unrepentance over his sin, right? God was disciplining him. It's not that his bones were literally broken, but it felt as though his bones were broken. He was miserable. And I want to tell you something. While I don't deny the the reality of chemicals in our brains that sometimes need to be looked at, I'm going to tell you something. There's something that's often overlooked in our world. Sometimes we feel what David felt when we carry unrepentant sin in our lives. One possible reason of our depression is we're carrying around. Sin, unconfessed, undealt with. He felt as though his bones were broken. What does he pray for, though? He says, I want to hear joy and gladness again. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He wanted the joy back in his walk with God. Have you ever been there? Like, oh, I used to feel so close and so much joy walking with you, God. But then I, I started down this path of sin. And now you feel far away And that joy. Restore it, Lord make me whole again second set of forgiveness and restoration forgiveness verse 9 says, hide your face from my sins and and blot out all my iniquities we already talked about the blotting out but the hide your face God as my judge please don't focus on that sin in my life any longer don't don't focus there instead he prays for restoration to what A, a right spirit Verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. What's that talking about? Well, the Hebrew word for right there can be translated as steadfast, to keep on keeping on with God. He's saying, God, renew that willingness in me to to walk with you faithfully through this life. Help me be steadfast again in my walk with you. I want that back. Last but not least, the third set of forgiveness and restoration. Forgiveness, he says, God, cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. And you read especially that second part and you say, why would David pray that? Because it had happened to his predecessor, King Saul. You remember in Saul's repeated disobedience, it says the Holy Spirit left him. And he was tormented by an evil spirit. David said, though I deserve that, Lord, please don't let that happen to me. Now, because of the way the New Testament describes the Holy Spirit, Jesus says he will indwell the believer. He is a deposit, a guarantee. One of those words can be translated engagement ring. He's God's guarantee of eternity. I don't believe that's a real possibility for the believer today that the Holy Spirit can leave. However, let us not dare take that merely as a word of comfort because the New Testament does make clear, believer, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God by unconfessed sin in our lives. We can quench his work in our lives, in our churches by unconfessed sin. I think about the Holy Spirit, Christ, the Father living in the believer, and I, I, think, I think about a book called, My Heart, Christ's Home, it's actually more of a pamphlet, it's really short, I'd encourage you to get a copy, but the author talks about what's it like to have God living in you, and he, he compares it to a house, and he gets to the point, he says, many of us view Jesus kind of like a guest. Like Jesus is my guest here. The Holy Spirit is my guest. But in the last chapter, he cuts right to it. He says, guess what? He's interested in being a lot more than your guest. you know what he came to be? He came to be your Lord. 1 Corinthians says you're not your own. You're bought at a price. And I think about that. The Holy Spirit in the believer, I think about something I did this week. My parents, I walked through their, their house that they're going to be renting this week. The final walkthrough. And I looked around and, oh, here's a, a broken electrical plate. Here's a wall that needs painted. Here's, here's a little crack. And I, I let the company know, that hey, could you all please deal with that? I think about that walkthrough and I, I think about that book, My Heart, Christ's Home. Holy Spirit's in here. And, and the believer says, Lord, you have freedom to walk through your temple here. And when he points at something and says, hey, that needs fixed. That needs fixed. That needs fixed. That's when we, even as believers, confess and say, Lord, help me turn around and walk in a way that, that pleases you again. Restoration. Again, to joy and a willing spirit. Verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I want it back. I want it back. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, this is a tricky phrase in Hebrew. Uphold me with a willing spirit. I I agree with the New King James Version here that says, uphold me by your generous spirit, the Holy Spirit. See, he knew after all this, if he's going to go forward and walk with God faithfully, it's not going to be his own doing, it's going to be God's Holy Spirit within him. So, what would that lead to? That leads to number five. How would David proceed? We're going to see two things. Number one, he would tell other sinners about God's holiness and grace. How do I know that? Verse 13. God, you forgive and restore me. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Telling others is the natural response of someone's life that knows how much they've been forgiven and restored by God. It doesn't come from some preacher hammering on you saying, you got to go out there and tell others about Jesus, and I want to hear how many you did it, how many you talked to. It comes when we truly understand how much we've been forgiven and how much God has restored us. He, I'm going to go tell other sinners about your ways. Second, he says, I'll sing your praises. Verse 14, he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. He, it's almost like he felt Uriah's blood hanging on him because of what he had done. Deliver me from that, O God, O God of my salvation. And what? My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Just like witnessing, singing to God is the same thing. It doesn't come because we hammer you. Sing, sing, sing. It it comes from a heart that understands how much has been forgiven and restored. Do we understand how much we've been forgiven and restored. Number six, David's lesson to heed. This is an important lesson that David learned out of all this. Lesson is this God wants our hearts, not our empty rituals. Verses 16 and 17. First, the bad news empty rituals are rejected by God. Where did I get that? Verse 16, he says, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. You say, hold on a second. Leviticus, Exodus, there's whole books about how God wanted sacrifices, right? So why does David said he wouldn't delight in that? Because God only valued those if they reflected a sincere heart. He didn't value them as a ritual itself. That's where a lot of the prophets go. You remember Isaiah chapter 1. God comes right at him. He says, I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Verse 15, he says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? He says, your hands are full of blood. It was all a show for many of these folks at that time. Amos 5.23. Amos has God saying, take away from me the noise of your songs. Even their singing had become obnoxious to God because he knew, though they worshipped him with their lips, their hearts were far from him. That's the bad news. Empty rituals are rejected by God. Here's the good news. Broken hearts are accepted by God. Verse 17. That's what David says. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And if you're like me, you read a passage like this and this is where it leads you. You you see where you need to confess, right? In Isaiah, after all that bad news about the empty rituals, guess what God says to the people in Isaiah 1.16? He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And then what does he say in verse 18? He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, They shall be as white as snow. I want your hearts. I don't want your empty rituals. What I take from this is when it comes to life with God, the way up is down. way up is down. Any of you remember Indiana Jones 3? He's going after the Holy Grail, and he's got these clues near it. And the first clue was only the penitent man shall pass. And, and he's thinking, penitent means humble. And as he's going through, he, he ducks and these blades fly just over his head. He survived because he knelt. Only the penitent man shall pass. I'm telling you, that's how it is. If you want to come to salvation with God, you come to God high handed and say, look what I've done. Look, look how many good things I've done. Look how few bad things I've done compared to that guy. And that's what you're counting on for salvation. You can only expect the blade of his wrath for all eternity if you die in that state. But if you come and bow and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need your mercy in Jesus Christ. The way up is down. And it's the same for the believer that wants to keep fellowship with God on a daily basis. That humility is an ongoing need. What happened in Luke 18? Pharisee and a tax collector come to the temple and they both pray prayers and the Pharisees, oh Lord, thank you, I'm not like those guys. (laughs) Look at all this stuff I do. Whoa, I impressed myself. (laughs) And the tax collector just beat his breast. Have mercy on me, oh God, a sinner. And Jesus looked at those people, shocked them. It doesn't shock us because we've heard it before. But he shocked them. He said, which one of those guys went home forgiven before God? Many of that crowd probably would have said the Pharisee. What did Jesus say? I tell you, this publican went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Way up is down. Just think of the wonder and the invitation of this. You see it in Isaiah at least a couple times. Isaiah 57, 15. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. You hear that description of God. You're like, how could I have a relationship with him? What does he say? He says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What does it mean to be contrite? It means to be humble, to be broken about our sin. What an invitation. He does it again in Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Again, you hear that like, how could I have a relationship with that God? Verse 2, God goes on. He says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Does that describe us today? What an invitation. Final point, David intercedes. He's going to pray for his nation, his people. And his prayer reminds me of a couple things. That the forgiven and restored believer does not only care about God's goodness and grace in his own life. He wants it for those around him or her. And see, so he goes to pray For Israel. And I see a couple points in the prayer. Number one, God's blessing is not deserved, it comes from His good pleasure. Why do I say that? Verse 18 He says, Do good to Zion, Jerusalem. Do good to Zion in in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. I think about in your good pleasure. What's that mean? They could not deserve God's blessing. If they're going to be blessed, it was because of his love and his grace. How do we know this? Listen to what Moses had told Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 9.6. He looks at them on the brink of the promised land. And he says, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Now, I've had to preach some uncomfortable messages. Can you imagine that day stand up in front of that crowd and say, you all stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't getting in there because of your goodness. Deuteronomy 7, 6, why were they getting in there? He said to them, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God's blessing comes from his good pleasure. Second thing I see in his prayer is that there was such a thing as a right sacrifice. How do I know that? Verse 19, he says, then you will delight in right sacrifices. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. What is a right sacrifice? What have we learned? A, a right sacrifice is a sacrifice that comes from a broken and contrite, a sincere heart before God. These David offered, and he found forgiveness and restoration from God. Does this mean there were no consequences? Absolutely not. There were tragic consequences of David's sin. You'll remember the child born of that union, the first child died as a result of the sin. You'll remember that in his nation and even in his own household, David would live out much of the rest of his life with with treason and war on his hands. There were consequences. But it does mean that David would face these consequences And whatever other trials came in his life, walking in fellowship with the Lord. We think about David's need. We would be remiss without thinking of our own great need, right? Listen, just like with Israel, if we're going to be blessed by God, it's not going to be because of something we deserve. It's going to be because of his good pleasure and his love. How do we know that? What does Paul say? Romans 5, 6 says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Quite a resume we got, right? Weak, ungodly, sinners, quite a love of God. To send his son to the cross. Which reminds me that the ultimate sacrifice for our need was made by Jesus Christ himself. When he looks back on this passage in Psalm 51, I want you to hear the, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 4 4. He says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Does that sound familiar? Have we read that today? Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Jesus said to the Father, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And listen to verse 10. It says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. And it's hard to overstate how that, that word must have grated on Jewish ears once for all, because you read through Leviticus, one of the things it tells us about that altar out there is the fire had to burn continuously on that altar. It was not allowed to go out. Why? Because there was always sin to be dealt with. Daily, daily sacrifices. Contrast the altar must burn continuously with once and for all. Psalm 103, 12, I... I love this verse on God's forgiveness in Christ as far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. It's only because of the sacrifice of Jesus that today we can be forgiven and restored. Jeremiah 31, 34. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's the new covenant under which you and I live it brings up a question. If it says he will remember our sins no more and maybe you're thinking of this question too, then then why does John write to believers that we need to confess our sins? 1 John 1 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness Thomas Constable helped me here I want you to think of two kinds of forgiveness with God number one the forgiveness of a judge the moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ God's Word tells us you're justified you're declared righteous before the judge and so your sin will never show up on that judicial docket okay but there's also the forgiveness of a father And while I believe once you're a son or daughter of God, you will always be a son or daughter of God. If you choose to live in unrepentant sin, if I do, we put a wall up in that relationship. And we fail to enjoy the intimacy in that relationship that we're invited to. That's what I believe John's talking about. And if you still say, no, 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 can't be because says I'll remember their sins no more. Well, if that means God is totally unaware of sin in the life of the believer, let me ask you a question. How does God lovingly discipline his children as a father as he tells us he does in Hebrews 12? Listen, as a believer, you are justified before the Lord, but there are moments in our lives often where we need to take our sin because we become tainted by the muck and mire of the sin in our flesh. The, the sin in our world and the, the temptations Satan throws our way. But the good news here, believer, it's also because of his sacrifice that when we take those sins we're aware of today that we find that family cleansing and restoration of fellowship. You say, all right, where, where do we wrap this up? Well, we've followed David as he walked down that that path of confession where he found forgiveness and restoration where where we close so i want us to just close our eyes for a moment and i want you to imagine that you were there the day that the son of david jesus christ was was talking to the crowds in luke chapter 15 luke chapter 15 tells us the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear jesus and the pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And I want you to imagine you're one of those sinners in that crowd, and I want you to see and feel the dirty looks, the looks of disgust from the Pharisees, the the religious leaders, and, and maybe even some in that crowd felt a hopelessness before God, like, I can never be like these Pharisees, these religious leaders. They look so holy and I'm so not. But then you hear the words of the son of David as he begins. And he says this. He says, there was a man who had two sons. And he speaks of a son who who takes his part of his father's inheritance early, a a grave insult to his father and goes and, and spends it on reckless living. He becomes destitute to the point where he wants to eat the food that he's feeding the pigs. And many of those sinners in the crowd would say, yeah, that's me. That's me. That's where I'm at. But, But Jesus continues on, and he says, when that son came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father... I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. It's been well said. The bad news is we're all sinners. The good news is sinners are the only kind of people Jesus came to save. Now I want to close with an invitation. Pastor Aaron's going to come up here and sing a song. We're not going to sing with him today. The words are not going to be up here. I want to put an acronym for confess up there along with a painting of the prodigal son. At the heart of confession... Come on now. The father entreats his son to surrender. I want to see you just spend a few moments talking with God, whether it's your first time coming to Jesus or you're a believer that needs cleansed today. from that daily muck and mire come to him and accept his offer for forgiveness and restoration. This is your time with the father.
1: Oh, heart of mine Why must you stray For one so fair You run away And one more time You have to pay The heaviness Of needless shame oh, heart of mine Please come back home You've been too long Out on your own And he's been there All alone Watching for you down the road So come home in His arms are open wide his name is Jesus, and he understands, he is the answer you are looking for. Come on, it just as you are. child of God, so dearly love. And reads by the Savior's blood, and called by name, daughter and son, right to the room of the So come over, Roddy. His eyes are open wide, his name is Jesus, and he he is the answer you are looking for. Oh, come over, right in, just as you are. Oh, come over, right in, His arms are open wide. His name is Jesus, and he understands. He is the answer. He is the answer you are looking for. Come over on it, just as you are. Just come over on it, just as you are.